Hello and welcome to this episode of Physical Attraction. This week we have a guest on the show, economics and finance writer Frances Coppola. She's the author of a book, Quantitative Easing for the People, which argues that central banks and governments should work in concert to ensure that their response to financial crises really helps the economy and the entire economy, rather than just inflating asset prices, as we've seen conventional quantitative easing do. In the second part of our interview, we go into much more depth about the specific idea of quantitative easing for the people. Essentially, what would happen if the central banks or government directly gave every individual in the country a few thousand pounds, rather than injecting the stimulus into the market indirectly by buying up assets? We also discuss specifically what the ideal response to the coronavirus crisis should be, and the role that banks and governments have to play in our response. I mean, one aspect of existing QE that is a lot of concern for me, I'm, my day job is a climate scientist. The Bank of England recently disclosed that um, if every company behaved as the companies in its corporate bond portfolio behaved, we'd be on for three and a half degrees of warming by the end of the century, which is obviously blows through the Paris Agreement of two degrees by a huge amount. And what, what sort of disturbs me here is that if the government were bailing out polluting industries with no strings attached, um, which they have done in the case of the airlines, actually, but let's not worry about that too much, then there might be some hope of democratic accountability. We can vote them out. We can write to our MPs in green ink and all this sort of thing. How do we or how does anyone impose restrictions on the central banks if they're acting in ways that are that are considered to be bad? And we've said that QE, you know, QE is uh, something that is distributively, in terms of its distributive impacts, is helping rich people more than poor people. And therefore, it, it's having a societally, a socially negative impact, you can argue. And if QE is something that can inflate bubbles and different types of assets that we don't necessarily want, surely this this carbon bubble of high polluting industries is something we also want to avoid. So, so for central banks, where does the democratic accountability come into? And is that even something that we should be talking about if we're talking about how we can't have a, a government and a central bank that are in bed with each other because that will lead to uh, corruption and inflation and other bad things. Um, I actually think the, the Bank of England is in breach of its mandate. Um, I'll tell you why. Um, and that is, if you actually look at its mandate, yes, it has a price stability mandate, but it's also supposed to support the government's economic objectives. Now, the government has a 2% climate um, target, um, and the Bank of England is indulging in behaviour that means it will breach that target, then the Bank of England is not fulfilling its mandate. So I think that there is an, a, an overriding imperative on the Bank of England to clean up its act regarding, uh, regarding corporate corporate QE. Um, it should be, it should be, it's got to green it. Because like I said at the moment, I, I would regard it as, as in breach of its mandate. Um, it, it, central banks should not be pulling directly against government policy like that. No, they are an arm of governments. You can't have governments pulling in opposite directions. Um, you know, um, so that that I've uh, now as far as the rest of QE is concerned, um, I suppose I mean central banks argue that the that the counterfactual is worse. You know, that not having QE is worse, and I would agree with that. Actually, that one of the one of the most important roles of QE. We saw it in in, in uh, 2008 and again in March this year, is actually to stop asset price collapses. And it is very effective at that. Um, and actually, because we know that why the asset price collapses are disastrous for economies, they are. Um, you know, the, the debt deflation of the 1930s was because of collapsing asset prices. And if central banks can stop that, then they can stop an enormous amount of economic damage 
They can keep a lot of people in their jobs. They can keep a companies afloat. And I actually think that's a really important thing to do. Um, so from that point of view, I regard QE as sometimes a necessary evil. Um, and I've seen it used that way um, a couple of times. And I am generally, my general view is that on both occasions, it was the right thing to do. Where I depart from you know, where central banks are on this, which is kind of QE because nobody's got a better idea, is that actually there are better ideas. Um, that we had 10 years of QE, more than 10 years, of continual QE by some central bank or other. It never stopped. Okay, you no, know, when the Fed stopped doing doing it, the ECB started doing it, and the Japan was doing it, and it, it, it just kind of moved around the globe, really. Um, and um, I have all of it in the expectation that somehow, eventually, we would cross the rainbow and, and get back to a healthy economy just by doing this. And, and and at the same time as fiscal authorities were actively pulling in the opposite direction. And I, I feel that that was not a justifiable use of QE and they should have, A, been much more creative and, and intervened much more directly to reflate depressed economies, but also that fiscal authorities have a lot to answer for. So you can, so yeah, I mean, you can sort of see the frustration here from, from again, someone who is just learning about all this stuff, as I, as I keep saying that, you know, you you come in from the outside, and part of you just thinks, well, hang on a minute, isn't it a bit like there is a, a, a set of people in these central banks who are doing things? They assure us, don't you worry, because that's the we're we're in charge of the economy and we know how it works, and you must trust us that if we didn't do this, there would be a massive recession, and we're pointing to the negative effects that this has, um, in terms of, for example. The distributive problem where rich people are benefiting more than poor people and so on and also the the climate problem and propping up i mean you can prop up all sorts of assets that you don't think are good assets or that they shouldn't be bubbles in and they, these can all be effects that are uh, direct or indirect consequences of qe and yet when it comes to say okay well if this is so necessary and there's no alternative what are you doing to ameliorate the side effects and then suddenly people sort of shuffle out of the room and you're not hearing about it anymore mm. Yeah, I mean, there is an element of kind of confirmation bias going on here, isn't there, really? Uh, so, well, are there other things you can do? And they go very quiet. And then, then you come up with some other things they might do and they go, oh, we couldn't do those. Uh, it included things, early on, it, it included things like negative interest rates. I remember writing about this back in about 2013 as being this sort of, sort of weird and wonderful thing that somebody had discussed. So, of course, they'd never do that. Um, and, um, you know, this was... Uh, and now here we are in 2020 and some central banks have actually got some negative interest rates and have had for some time. And But more stranger than that, we've got people like the National Institute talking about it as part of the conventional policy space. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about negative interest rates, we're saying here that they issue bonds that actually depreci- that lose value over time, but not as fast as other things do. Is that right? No, no, no. Or that you, or that you pay to hold. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, it's just, it's the um, central bank interest rate setting. Central, uh, you mentioned earlier, central banks set interest rates. It's it set what they call a policy rate, um, which generally speaking is the, the interest rate at which banks lend to, uh, which they lend to banks, roughly speaking. Okay, um, and then other interest rates in the economy kind of follow on from that. Years ago, it used to be this assumption that these rates had to be positive. We couldn't possibly have have negative rates in the economy because all sorts of weird effects would happen. So it's just a really weird thing to do. And, and QE was, was better than negative interest rates. I actually think negative interest rates are awful things, but um, 
and I'd rather they weren't now part of the conventional policy space. But yeah, this is all to do with the fact that, that as part of their inflation control, uh, the principal tool that, that central banks have at their disposal is interest rates, and they have a number of ways of influencing those. So they can set explicit negative interest rates, um, or they can do so much, so they can do huge amounts of QE to try and depress interest rates so much that they're negative. So you end up with negative yields on government bonds, as we've seen fairly recently, actually. Um, um, Germany has had negative trading bonds for quite some time, so has Switzerland. And actually, um, not very long ago, the UK government sold some bonds as negative with a negative coupon. Um, so mm. there was actual explicit negative interest rate on that bond. Extraordinary. Um, and a lot of that is caused by the central bank activity in depressing interest rates. It's to QE is a way of depressing interest rates. Um, but so I just know that people talk about this as, as being, oh, this is conventional now. And <laughs> 10 years ago, it wasn't. Well, that just goes to show that your sort of central thesis that we're moving away from a, one type of economics to uh, 2020 nomics or something else is, is, yes. is starting to come true because things that were once un, unconsiderable or impossible are now conventional policy tools. Um, so speaking of something that was not a conventional policy tool, we've talked about QE as it has been done and the negative impacts that that has had. And your your book, uh, which I have here, is The Case for People's Quantitative Easing. So what is people's QE? How might it work? There are two forms of people's QE. Um, the first is sometimes known as helicopter money. Um, it's the idea that the central bank would give an amount of money um, to individuals and perhaps to small businesses, but certainly to individuals, um, give, you know, say, give, put, say, a couple of thousand pounds into everybody's bank account. Um, and it would do so as part of monetary policy. This would not be like uh, the government um, giving some, giving people money because they're struggling with coronavirus or something. It would be an attempt to increase what we call aggregate demand, which is, broadly speaking, the level of spending in the economy, and it's that that governs inflation. So um, when when we have a recession, and actually particularly in the coronavirus, where actually people have been actively prevented from spending, we'll talk about that in a bit, um, your aggregate level of spending in the economy falls. So everything just kind of sort of grounds to a halt. And... Um, and so your inflation falls off a cliff because there's nothing nothing holding it up. Um, and so central banks intervene to try and get people spending. And um, and my argument has been that actually, if what you want to do is raise aggregate demand, you probably should make sure your money goes to the people who are actually likely to spend it. And the problem with QE, which was, although it gives new money to a group of people, the people that it broadly gives new money to are people who've already got lots of money and aren't very likely to spend it on goods and services. They will literally just spend it on other other financial assets, driving up the prices of those assets. So the helicopter argument is that if you just give money to ordinary people, they'll actually go out and spend it on goods and services. And that will raise the level of aggregate demand in the economy much more effectively than um, giving money to rich investors. And so, so, th so this is so. There's sort of two separate ideas here. I think you said one is that the central bank does this, and then the other is that the government does this by borrowing, and maybe that's supported by monetary policy from the central bank. Is that fair? That's the second form of people's QE, and this is the idea that the central bank can finance 
um, government spending one way or another. It can do so in a number of ways. It could do so, it does so now, arguably through QE, because after all, this is these are central banks buying up, hoovering up their own government's debt in enormous quantities. I mean, in Japan, really for quite some time, the central bank has been buying up every bond that the government issues. The it's heading that way in the United States as well. Um, so you could say that your central bank is financing government spending. It will tell you that what it's trying to do is keep inflation off the floor. Um, so it's still monetary policy, but what it's doing is financing government spending. Um, there, that's um, that's the indirect way of doing it. Is is where you know the gov- the government issues the bonds into the market and the central bank buys them from from investors. Um, there's a direct way of doing it as well, which is for the government to issue bonds, which is then explicitly bought by the central bank, and that is actually prohibited in a good many um, places, including the UK. Um, there's also another way of doing it, which is for the uh, government to to borrow directly from the central bank, um, and actually um, that's also prohibited in a lot of places, but it's not actually prohibited in the UK. Interestingly. Um, we have what we call the main ways and means facility, which is an overdraft facility that the government has with the Bank of England, has had for many, many years. Um, and even when we were members of the EU, um, because this direct financing of government is explicitly banned in the EU, um, mm-hmm. the UK had a specific exemption from the treaty from Lisbon uh, Treaty Article 123, which explicitly bans um, central bank from financing government, the, uh, there was an explicit um, ex- exemption from that for the Ways and Means facility. It was used in 2008 to bail out Bradford and Bingley and paid off quickly. And um, in April, the central bank, the Bank of England and the government between them agreed that it would be used again and they lifted the limit on it so the government can make unlimited use of it. The reason for using it that they gave was actually because when government issues, I mean, the government's going to issue, is issue an awful lot of bonds at the moment. When you issue an awful lot of bonds into a financial market, you destabilise it. I mean, governments are very big players and huge amounts of, of government bonds hitting the market all at once. Um, can have really destabilising effects. Mm-hmm. And it can actually um, increase government borrow, borrowing costs quite considerably because obviously it's just an enormous amount of, of quantity hitting the market all at once. So they're going to trade at a discount, aren't they? The price is going mm-hmm. to fall. Um, and that's going to increase the borrowing costs quite a bit. Um, so um, to stabilise it and to ensure that, you know, that we don't suffer sort of wild swings in, in government bond markets and things like that, um, the, the Bank of England has agreed that the government can borrow directly from it using the Ways and Means facility on a strictly short-term basis. I would regard that as a form of people's QE, really, even though they're saying mm-hmm. it's only, only, only on a short-term basis. But it's also still coupled with a commitment from the central bank to control interest rates one way or another. And one of the means of, that they're using to control interest rates is to buy bonds. Another way of doing it is to have like um, a development bank or something, which is producing good quality, which is issuing bonds to finance projects. It might be green projects, might be infrastructure projects, all sorts of things. And the central bank um, buying those bonds in order to control the, uh, the price of them 
so that again these projects don't suddenly suffer massive increases in growing in in finance charges that's another form of people's qe there's a number number of ways of doing it some of which break mm-hmm. the law and some of which don't um I see. this form of government of central bank financing of government is always anathema it's actually not true it's all a question of how you do it but the main idea really is just to try and have the central bank one way or another, whether it's via the actual government itself, whether it's via a bank or whether it is just direct uh, cash, helicopter money, as it was called. And in fact, your, your book has a, a picture of a helicopter dispensing loads of dollar bills onto a city, um, uh, which may or may not be Milton Keynes here. Um, yeah. <laughs> It's certainly Milton and maybe not Keynes. Yeah. <laughs> it's so, so, Milton Friedman's famous image is of mm-hmm. the yes, is of a helicopter dispensing money. Yes, so yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, so wh- let's just talk about why this would be better in your view than what central banks have done before. I think because it is uh, in the case of helicopter money. I think I've already said it's because it's going to people who have a greater propensity to spend the money. Um, mm-hmm rather than to spend money on goods and services um, from businesses. So, you know, and it directly increases employment, directly gets things, gets the economy moving, um, rather than trying to raise asset prices and doing it, doing it indirectly via raising asset prices to make it easier for corporates to borrow and corporates use the, you know, go and buy back their own shares. Um, and increase the price of their shares. With, with financing it with very cheap debt and, and things like that. Um, so um, for me, actually raising the the actual spending, the actual purchases of goods and services in a way that doesn't increase debt. You know, when you've just come out of a debt crisis and here you are, the only only means you've got of of stimulating your economy is to is to try and get businesses to borrow. Um, isn't it better to give money to people so that people can go out and spend? Um, and then businesses can produce these goods and services and they won't need to borrow because they'll have money. Um, no, it, it, it does seem nonsense to me to have to do everything by increasing debt all the time. Um, mm-hmm. But um, and on the on the people's QE side, um, part of the casualty of sort of the legacy of 2010, really, when we made this disastrous turn to austerity was that we cut infrastructure spending so very much. And again, if we had been able to use say a development bank or something like that to finance infrastructure with the central bank standing by to to backstop it to keep its finance costs down we needn't have done that and we could have been in a very different shape now and i think we're going to need to do something like that going forward because we're going to need a big big boost to this economy now let's talk a little bit about some of the common objections to this policy because you have a whole chapter in your book which essentially combats all of these common objections that you get when you talk about this and again with our sort of vaguely i guess quite naive notions of the economy sometimes the the most common objection you get is this would lead to hyperinflation weimar germany you have uh, if you have a helicopter dropping money that money will go into wheelbarrows and it will be completely worthless and people will be wheeling it around so on. even my mum said this when i said that i was interviewing you today um so what is what is the counter argument here that doing this doesn't lead to inflation or hyperinflation um, the simple answer is that at the time that you're doing it, remember the, the when you want to be doing this is when your economy is, is when aggregate demand is collapsing, when your your economy is falling off a cliff. Um, actually, you kind of want to raise inflation, really. I know that seems ridiculous, but you actually do want to raise inflation because what you're trying to do is counter deflation. It's funny, everybody's terrified of inflation, but nobody's scared of deflation. 
And you're actually, and this is prices going down because no one can buy anything. Because nobody can buy anything, and your prices are collapsing, and your business is going out of business because they're not making the money. Um, so, um, judicious use of helicopter money to get people spending again when your prices are falling off a cliff. Um, yes, it's going to create some inflation, but it's not going to cause, cause runaway inflation. I mean, I mean, there, there is a, also a degree of sort of amount here that, um, you know, obviously, if you produced absolutely ginormous quantities of this money and went on and on and on doing it and you never stopped, you would actually end up with, with very high inflation. Of course you would. But that's not what we're talking about. I, I, I've been I think I was very clear in the book that helicopter money needs to be one-off or just a few drops. It's not a continuous influx of money into the economy. In this, in this respect, it's different from, say, universal basic income, which mm-hmm. would be a continuous flow. It would be mm-hmm. simply at need in a crisis when the central bank needs to do something quick and sharp to raise aggregate demand. Um, it can give some money to ordinary people. Incidentally, it's actually very similar. That kind of use of a helicopter drop is not dissimilar to proposals we've seen recently for a temporary cut in VAT. Because it's it's a similar sort of boosting yeah. of purchasing power for people. Absolutely. It's giving people some additional money. Or even, um, in fact, America actually did a fiscal drop, which was quite similar to a central bank's um, helicopter drop. I mean, the Fed was financing it indirectly because it, it handed out um, checks for... Um, well, actually, most of them were, were um, bank transfers, but they did have checks as well for for twelve hundred dollars to every citizen. Yeah, I was going to say that there's uh, is an idea that not you know no, since since you wrote this book some some years ago has has actually been deployed, and now we have a sort of experimental use case in the states that we might be able to figure out what kind of impact this has and to maybe dispel some of these notions here. Well, one of the things in the book that I that I found very interesting was this notion that hyperinflation. We think about it as being if you print too much money, then you get hyperinflation. But but you actually talk about it in terms of it's it's not really as correlated with the increase in the monetary supply, but instead people losing confidence in the government's ability to govern. Could, could you could you expand on that a bit more? Is that a fair interpretation of what you said? Yes, I think that that is exactly right. When we're talking about hyperinflation, I would distinguish hyperinflation from just high inflation. High inflation does is is a, a supply demand imbalance really. Um, it's caused when you know your supply side can't keep up with, with demand, and and your central bank should be it can be in control of that. Um, it can adjust conditions in the economy to dampen demand, um, um, to allow the supply side to catch up. Um, you know th- that's a little bit different. That th- that can still happen within a responsibly managed um, economy. Um, hyperinflation is a different matter. That hyperinflation is out of control. Um, mm-hmm. And it's because people have lost ability, it lost faith in the ability of the government and by extension the central bank to control the value of the of the currency. You're talking about a basket case. For some reason, some, they, they simply don't believe in it anymore. And so they dump it as fast as they can. They sell it. They sell the currency. They, they buy assets, they buy goods, they buy services, they um, exchange it for other currencies, anything. And it can happen um, even when there's actually no increase in money, no particularly large increase in the money supply. You can still have that kind of effect happening. Um, we, we, we're used to it being associated with, with 
a huge amount of money printing as well, because when a currency is losing value very fast like that, um, your government loses its ability to finance its activities. And so it has to, to get on to the, to the central bank to finance its activities. And so the central bank has to print and that feeds into the feeding spiral, the, the downward spiral, and it makes it worse. Um, but it doesn't have to operate like that. Um, mm-hmm. One of the most interesting cases of, of, of technical hyperinflation in recent years actually has been, this is going to surprise you, Greece. If I explain why it's hyperinflation, um, it was in 2015 when the Greek crisis, when you may recall, um, Greece had to close down its banks um, yes. after the ECB limited the amount of money of actual euros um, available to the banks. And what was happening mm-hmm. at the time was a run on the banks. Everybody was trying to remove euros from the banks. So the, the banks were closed and they placed a limit on the ATMs. Um, and what happened then was that everybody bought stuff using bank cards. And you saw a vast increase in, in purchases of things like jewellery and furs and white goods and things like that. People just getting rid of the money in the banks. Because, because they, they didn't trust it. They didn't trust it anymore. They didn't believe that the government could govern. And if you think about what was happening in Greece at that time, what you've got was a political crisis. So when we tend to see hyperinflations, we have political crises, usually associate, usually economic crises as well, because the two go together. We often see them in the aftermath of wars. So the losers in wars, it's not uncommon for a country that suffered a disastrous um, loss in a war to suffer hyperinflation afterwards. Um, Weimar is the most obvious example, Germany, but also Austria and Danzig Free State. Um, there mm-hmm. were hyperinflations in those as well after the First World War. Inflation itself has not actually been increased by QE and inflation has been consistently missing targets. And so this idea that people are concerned about this sort of stimulus uh, directly to people on inflationary grounds is a little bit is missing the point. Yeah. I mean, over the last 10 years, we've actually seen inflation go down. Um, you know, central banks have really struggled to meet their inflation targets over the last 10 years. And particularly in the last five, actually, the ECB, for example, has been well below. And the Fed has been too. I, I was looking at this actually um, only um, a day or two ago, looking at the Fed's inflation record since 2008. It's been consistently below what it was before 2008. So with all this QE they were doing, if anything, it um, has, is associated with inflation being lower than it was without it. So there's really quite a lot of firepower and, and latitude to do stuff here that, that we just haven't done so far. One, one of the other objections that people have, I think, is that, um, for example, this is the objection that my brother raised, who works in the city. He said that if you uh, give people helicopter money, then people will come to depend on it. Um, I, I mean, here's me thinking from, I suppose, a slightly more left wing perspective than he has. You know, it's kind of ironic, given that the you're, you're worried about people depending on the money. And yet that ha- that is what has happened with conventional QE, in a sense, because in in lots of ways the the interest uh the the balance sheet hasn't gone down that much although mm. as you say the feds did in in 20 in 2014 um i think that this is already your insistence that the helicopter money would just be a sort of one-off temporary thing means that people won't depend on it and it's sort of seen in the context of an emergency stimulus and i think we're seeing now the extent to which um people will depend on uh government handouts in an emergency. We're seeing this rhetoric all showing up around, for example, in Britain, we have this furlough scheme where the government is paying employees wages and so on. But I mean, do you think that's a valid um, objection? Or is it just something that that people sort of 
say? I think the fact that he, he worked in financial markets is, is telling because actually financial markets arguably have become dependent on QE because we have massively overused it. If you overuse anything, you're doing, doing QE for 10 years, over a decade, one way or another. Market, through the crisis, through the crash and the rally, all the way through the longest bull market in history as well. All the way through. Um, doing QE or leaving QE unwound or somebody was doing QE somewhere. Um <laughs> No, and, and under those circumstances, yes, I think I would agree that, that markets have become dependent on QE. They don't know how to operate without it. But that is an awful long time. Um, my argument with this is is that it should not be a long time. It should be one of stimulus. If it is not, if it becomes long term, as QE has, then you're not doing helicopter money anymore. What you're doing is universal basic income, and you need to have a serious discussion about whether a universal basic income creates dependence um, and what the role of government in supporting people's incomes is. And in this context, it's worth remembering that actually a very high proportion of the people of the UK depend upon government benefits. Mm-hmm. So state you know, pension, state pension, um, in work um in work benefits, universal credit is is um, tax credits as it used to be, um, and even at the upper end, even higher up, things like child benefit mm-hmm. is taxed away now. Um, you know, so yeah, what what role? You know, we maybe need to have a mature discussion about what role government in its various forms has in supporting people's incomes. But I think that needs to be separated from a discussion of what the central bank does. To, to raise aggregate demand in a, in a, in a recession. Mm-hmm. I mean, so again, do you think there are any other major objections that people raise to, to people's QE, which, which to me seems, when, when you look at it, it's actually a version of what we've been doing already that just happens to reach the whole economy and doesn't solely inflate asset prices. It, it just seems generically superior to what we've been doing already. Are there any other objections that people raise that you think are worth addressing? I think the biggest objection that I see, and I'm seeing it more, <clears throat> is that there's no point in in people's in central bank um, helicopter money um, because fiscal authorities can do it all. Um, I saw that advance that advanced yesterday by the director of the National Institute for Economic and Social Research. Said, really, it, you're just um, financing a fiscal deficit. It would be better for the government to make the drop and the central bank to finance it. Um, and I'm maybe a little bit agnostic about this. And I might say that, yes, I can see the argument that if what you're trying to do in a recession like this is to support people's incomes because otherwise they're going to suffer, then that's absolutely the fiscal authority's responsibility. Where I come from is saying that's different from saying that the central bank has a responsibility to raise aggregate demand to meet its inflation target and that's giving money to ordinary people not because they need it but because it will raise aggregate demand is a reasonable monetary policy intervention so i i my 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 view is maybe a little more nuanced than, Mm -hmm. than that but yes i do hear this advanced a lot i mean um and particularly with the resurgence of modern 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 monetary theory which is largely about saying the government can pay for everything itself, does not need to borrow from markets, does not need to borrow from anybody because it's the issuer of the currency. Um, And in MMT, the central bank and um, government are regarded as the same entity. They're they're, they're conflated and there's no independence. Um, Then, you know, we do have to discuss the 
where something like people's QE fits into a framework like that, really. Um, so I, but, I wanted to talk about this anyway, um, but yeah. I think since you brought it up, I think it's a good idea to talk about it now. So modern monetary theory, the, the way that this is presented in popular literature, I did actually read a good popular article that tried to explain it. Um, I'm not sure I took all of it in, but um, a, a lot of people are just saying, oh, it's printing money to infinity and the government and the central bank merge together and they print money that finances everything. And uh, people talk about it as this sort of looming disaster um, but the, 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 its proponents have it as an alternative theory of economics. And you're saying that the sort of neoliberal consensus on economics is, is probably going to be broken down by this crisis. So so what, what, what are the, the tenets of modern monetary theory? And can we sort of get away from this uh, oversimplified picture that you just turn the money printer on and distribute <laughs> to everyone? Yeah, it it it's it is more more subtle than that. I mean, what they're basically saying is, and, and there is some merit in this, I think, is that in in a country like the United States or the United Kingdom, um, which issues its own currency, um, the government is the sole monopoly issuer of that currency. It can produce as much or as little of it as the economy needs, and it should do so. In other words, the amount of money that the government should issue. Uh, should spend I should say spend rather than issue it's not about issuing and that's part of this kind of let's stop thinking about issuing currency and start talking about spending um, which is actually really important the amount that the government should spend should be enough to meet the needs of the economy and the needs of the economy are to ensure full employment and to meet the desire of the private sector to to accumulate what they call net financial assets which is roughly speaking the currency of the, the 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 what the government issues, um, in other words, so so basically, and they say if that happens when you've got full employment and you are literally just meeting that, then um, you're you are basically issuing the amount of money that will will uh, keep inflation under control, and if you issue too much, you raise taxes. So it's a case of printing money sort of until you have stimulated the economy enough to get to full employment. And traditionally, people view, because it, when I read the article about it that tried to explain this, it was saying that people traditionally view the control levers of the economy as things like interest rates. Um, yeah. and, and modern monetary theory is instead saying, well, actually, what you should be looking at is employment. Yeah, absolutely. No, they, they are 100% saying it's all about employment. It's all about full employment. Um they, they will tell you that that interest rates should be set at zero, um, and that it, they should be um, that they should be a, a job guarantee to ensure that everybody is always employed, and the government sets the job guarantee rate of wages, and that um, you know taxes can be used to control inflation. It's, it's a fundamentally sort of through the telescope way of looking at things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's sort of government, instead of these sort of one-off stimulus packages where they'd be looking at construction or something, I mean, we had in the UK, the Prime Minister gave a speech a couple of days ago saying build, 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 and wanted to spend 0.2% of GDP on some different construction projects. And um, <laughs> the, the thing that was interesting about that was that actually, it, I feel like, again, this is another another branch of misperceptions about the economy, is what the economy actually is. In the UK, our economy is 10% of the jobs of the construction industry, but 10% of retail and 10% of hospitality, and the build, build, build only helps them indirectly. Whereas if you did a sort of people's QE and gave everyone uh, 
loans that they had to go out and spend on something or other, um, like prepaid cards or something like that, which people have talked about, then you would actually stimulate those sectors of the economy as well. But um, that's sort of tangential to this idea of MMT, I guess, which is the government's role wouldn't be to do these these one-off stimulus packages, but instead to say, you will always have work via the government and this will be the minimum wage. And if you want a different job, you will, you know, that, that this is the basis that you start from. So it's not it's not necessarily UBI in the sense that we have everyone sitting around um, potentially uh, drawing the UBI from the government, but actually people who, who can work can always take up some level of government employment and there will always be something for them to do. Yeah, it's very much that. And um, a lot of the people I've I've discussed with in MMT are actually quite anti-UBI and helicopter money because for those reasons that they see it is all about um, actually production um, mm-hmm. and that an economy that it, where everybody is fully employed doing productive work, um, you know, shouldn't need these things. Um, they have a point. Um, I, you know, I, I think I would argue there would always be people who need income who can't work, but, and, mm-hmm. and they say, well, so there should be income support for those people but you know their view is that anybody who can work should really um it, like i said it's a different way of looking at things and and i think i you know i can see that you know in an ideal world if you actually did did if your government was kind of ensuring full employment all the time like that then you would not need something like a helico- helicopter money really um because what you would do would be to raise your, wage, your job guarantee wage Mm-hmm. But it's just so fundamentally different from what we do now. In some ways, it seems, you know, and again, people will talk about all of the potential flaws of this. I don't know if we really have time to go into that. I might have to get some MMT theory on here and do a, another <laughs> economics uh, episode on this. I'm, I'm talking to someone about UBI in, in the coming weeks. But um, in some ways, it seems like there's so many problems that we need to solve in terms of social care, in terms of decarbonizing our economy. You know, there's energy efficiency retrofits and stuff that people could be doing. And instead, the tragedy of a recession is that you do have a lot of people who are out of work. Um, it's wasted potential. It's wasted economic potential. And obviously, a lot, a lot of people, you know, we, we there's this argument that as humans, we need work for purpose and to, to live and obviously to support ourselves financially and so on. And so it, you can see the argument for this. I guess what I would ask is, is this current crisis, which has obviously led to the word unprecedented being used an unprecedented number of times, is it big enough to jolt people out of their traditional ways of looking at the economy? Or are the, the people in control of things so set in their ways that this sort of idea is only ever really going to be um, in textbooks? I mean, you've, you've been on the outside um, for, you know, in 2010, uh, when we had uh, austerity and so on, you were on the outside of of government and, and fiscal policy, they're arguing for something different. Um, do you think that this crisis is going to be enough to shake people into into changing their views on the economy and how it should be run? Or is it are we instead seeing an attempt to hold on to things the way they are and preserve the existing system as much as possible? I think we're actually reaching a very dangerous point right now as we come out, A, because it looks to me as if the government is trying to pretend that the coronavirus has gone away, which it definitely hasn't. Yeah. So they're running the risk of second spikes, um, as we're already seeing in America, of course, for exactly mm-hmm. that reason. Um, and secondly, because I think that if you actually look at what happened in 2008, we actually did do a lot of stimulus in 2008 and nine. The, the fiscal stimulus in 2009 was actually more than the government is currently proposing for this crisis. It's actually more and for a smaller recession. Mm-hmm. Right and and less and yet, fundamental problems yet, with the economy than we have now. And yet, in 2010, we had this disastrous turn to austerity to fix the public finances because that apparently was more important 
than ensuring people had had good well-paying jobs and could feed their families and you know it, it was all and 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 that we were investing for the future and so forth. it was more important and so i think there was a real danger that we will make that mistake again i'm already seeing the the kind of voices gathering pace saying oh we're going to have a v-shaped recovery so we won't need any more fiscal stimulus i've actually seen that said in the last two days um and, and people and, will look at the Dow Jones or the FTSE and they might see a V-shape, but they, they won't necessarily see it in employment. Oh, he's seeing it, he's seeing it in, in, in PMIs and I keep going, it's not a V-shape. It's <laughs> <laughs> uh, not a V-shape, it looks like one, but it really isn't. Um, <laughs> I have to write about that. Um, but, um, you know, you've got Andy Haldane, chief economist at the Bank of England, talking about a V-shaped recovery and, and raising the possibility of inflation if we do too much. Um you know, I, I, and I look at this and think, oh, no, no, this is way worse than you realise. And, and, and Without uh, wanting to sound conspiratorial here, um, I don't think this is conspiratorial, but do you think the reason that people are doing that is because they almost view their primary obligation and the people that they're socialising with and talking to are the holders of assets? And they're saying talking up the V-shaped recovery is great if you hold assets because it boosts confidence and people are going to be happy um, in terms of how their ETFs or their portfolios are doing. But they're actually not. It's it's not going to help ordinary people to say, ah, we're we're done with the need for fiscal or monetary stimulus at this point. I think they are just not seeing the real world. I think they are very cut off from it. So mm-hmm. they're not. So we have this bizarre idea that we could have a V-shaped recovery, but somehow somehow have twelve million unemployed. Well, that's not a V-shaped recovery. It just isn't. It is that kind of disconnect from from reality. That, that worries me that we they can say oh we don't need any more stimulus because you know it, a bit like Donald Marcus saying look stock markets are booming therefore we don't need to do anything about um <laughs> about the virus about people's jobs and I think but we do stock, a booming stock market is is not it, it helps but it doesn't it, it doesn't create jobs in a situation like this where some industries are extremely badly damaged particularly small businesses and where a lot of jobs are not coming back, where even companies that are surviving are going to cut back, where some industries um, have to undergo a sea change or massively bring forward the sea change that they were going to suffer anyway. That would be the airline industry. Um, you know, we are going to be talking about redeployment, retraining, reskilling. It's going to take us a long time to get out of this and government's going to have to spend a lot of money at the moment. They, um, and they, they're kind of kind of um, dabbling at it and coming up with some good slogans like build, build, build. But the actual amount of money they're putting into this is at present nowhere near enough. And there are is this sort of growing siren voices saying, oh, we, need, we don't even need to do this. I, I would be happy if the abandonment of government by three word slogans happened this year. I feel like we need to trust the British public a little bit more that they can deal with more than three words at a time. Um, it, get, it gets annoying after a while. So you've been very active recently in writing about how we should respond to the current coronavirus crisis because it's kind of unique as an economic crisis. It's not a typical recession. It's a sort of imposed recession where people can't spend. And so you talked about how if QE for the people is going to be one of the policy tools that's used in this, now is not the time for it. Um, so when when should it be used? When when would it be useful? Well, again, I come back to this distinction between the two different types mm-hmm. of people's QE. The, the the kind that says the central bank can fi- can safely finance government and in a crisis like this should do so, 
and the type that says central banks have responsibilities to raise aggregate demand and therefore should give money to people who are likely to spend it. They're two different things and they need to be do used at two different times. So right now is actually the time to be doing the first of those. The central banks need to be saying loud and clear to governments that they have their backs. I think the move we're seeing towards what we call yield curve control is helpful in that respect because that's an explicit statement from central banks that they're basically going to control the interest rates on government debt out to whenever. Um, and that's a, an interesting move. But I'm seeing, still not quite seeing governments responding to that. I'm not seeing the creation of a development bank. I'm not seeing these kind of um, uh, large scale moves that I would expect from a government that was confident that mm -hmm. uh, the central bank would backstop it. So I don't think the message is quite getting through. Governments should be um, confident that the banks, that central banks have their backs, including explicit financing of the deficit, if that's what's, if that's what's needed. Um, and that's QE for people, and they should be doing that now. Um, and then perhaps later, if aggregate demand needs to be boosted, that's when you helicopter money to people. Right. Now, what I've been saying is that doing um, helico a helicopter drop when your economy is not fully open is not all that sensible because, you know, you've still got a lot of businesses closed. You, there's all sorts of sectors of this economy that are closed. Um, and there are um, things that we don't want people to do. So if you if you give people money and they can't spend it, what are they going to do? Either they're going to go and do things you don't want them to do, um, or they're going to save it, which is kind of not the point of a helicopter drop. So I think that you keep your powder dry on this one. Um, I said it was like a VAT cut because, interestingly, again, the director of the National Institute for um, Economic and Social Research said yesterday that he would keep his powder dry on a VAT cut at the moment. So we're on the same page on this. Now's not the right time for that kind of aggregate demand stimulus where you simply give people some money and say, go and spend it. Because right now, you know, until the economy is fully open, we actually don't want them going out and spending it. No, and uncertainty is high enough that people would frankly be sensible to save it, if you ask me. Well, exactly. And they would put it in their bank accounts and leave it until it was safer to come out of, the, come, come out of their burrows. No, I, I mean, I, it's a bit like, you know, so if your rabbits have run back into their burrows because there's a hawk flying overhead and you are dangling a carrot outside the fire. <laughs> so, I mean... <laughs> so so in, in your view, tr Trump's $1,200 stimulus check was not the right approach? No, I didn't think it was. And I said so quite publicly at the time. I thought it was a mistake. I, I thought that what they should be doing um, was supporting people who were going to lose their incomes. What they should be doing was measures to keep people attached to their jobs, to pay their wages. Um, so or more like the furlough scheme, really? The furloughs, more like Britain's furlough scheme. Um, they did an extension to unemployment insurance, fortunately. And that, for me, is, was a much more, a far more important part of the CARES Act than the, high, than the headline $1,200 checks, which mm. I thought were pretty pointless, that what they should be focusing on was the money that people needed to pay their bills. And if mm -hmm. that meant paying some people a lot more than £1,200 and other people nothing because they were still working, um, then that was the way to do it. And, and broadly, that's actually what European countries have broadly done, mm -hmm. including the UK. What broadly done is to concentrate the money on keeping people, on supporting people's incomes rather than giving them helicopter drops.
Mm-hmm. And that's always been a criticism of UBI as well, is it, is it slightly regressive because everyone gets the same amount rather than being progressive in the sense that people get what they need. I think, so, so just one thing that I would like to, uh, well, a, a couple of things maybe to round off. One criticism that people have made of the furlough scheme, and particularly this is from a sort of climate point of view, um, and also the idea that a, a crisis like this does accelerate the ways in which economies change for, for, for good or ill, is that if you're... Um, trying to preserve as much of the economy as you can in amber, you're going to necessarily be preserving bits of the economy that aren't going to be sustainable. Um, and, you know, it probably is going to be the fact that when the furlough scheme ends, um, lots of people are going to lose their jobs. And you wonder if there's some balance to be struck between that money being spent on the furlough scheme and that money being spent on uh, retraining people for the sort of industries that we're going to have after this crisis and, and the growth industries for the future. That's certainly what I would like to see happen. I know that it's um, it, it, it's it's not quite that simple, but... Um, that that's one thing I'd like to have your perspective on. I don't see money as limited like that. Mm-hmm. I don't see that we need to make that choice. I think we can have the furlough scheme to keep people supported and we can have retraining schemes. And you no, know, we we it's not an either or. Um I think that what is absent from the discussion at the moment is any kind of real consideration of which industries really we don't want to see back in their previous form. So, for example, I've said quite publicly um, that I thought there should be preemptive nationalisation of airlines. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought the whole lot should be nationalised, as indeed we did the railways. You know, they're all nationalised now. Um, that went under that slipped under the radar, didn't it? Um, but we should have done that with airlines because the airline industry has got to change. Uh, a lot of it has got to disappear in its current form. And we're actually much better able to deal with that, to do it from a government ownership point of view, including, and then, you know, sort of through government agencies, finding ways of redeploying, retraining, and redeploying staff and so forth. is actually much better done as part of a strategy, uh, a coordinated strategy than it is by this kind of, oh, just leave it alone, the market will sort it out thing that, that we seem to be rather wedded to. Um, so I would rather do it that way than say that there are, Oh, workers in the, that those industries won't be eligible for furlough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I that's cutting that, people off a bit more, isn't it? It is absolutely cutting people off, and I don't think it's the right way to do it. I think that the furlough scheme has buys us time to to think about what we're doing with these industries, and I'm concerned that we seem to be a little bit with airlines things like that. We seem to be a little bit missing the opportunity that the furlough scheme gave us to 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 think about what that. Um, industry is going to look like in the future and what we're going to do, what people are going to do instead and how we can redeploy people. And, you know, we, we haven't kind of grasped that one. Mm-hmm. There is kind of strategic... This is an opportunity to reshape the economy for the future, which is what a lot of people have been saying that we should do, at least in, in climate terms. I, I really think we should. And I've been very struck by the number of people who've said, you know, um, in, this, in the lockdown, really became aware of what nature is like when we aren't messing it up. Mm-hmm. You know, there were no no aircraft trails. We could hear the birds' song. There was no traffic on the roads. It, it was everything was clear. The air was clear, and saying we'd like to hang on to a lot of that. Can we? And there was a survey that six percent of people thought that we should go back to normal. Um, you know, I was thinking of um, another person that I've tried to get on the show before is David Graeber, who has this whole theory oh, yeah. about uh, bullshit jobs in the economy <laughs> and so on. And there's going to be a lot of people who are now being made redundant from their bullshit jobs. You would think. Yeah. Um, as as costs are cut, and you just think uh, preserving the, these these um, unnecessary and inefficient industries in amber, when actually 
in in a, in a terrible way it's a crisis opportunity isn't it we have the crisis and we have the opportunity to to change things around and have an economy that works better for people except you have to look at who's actually losing their jobs and are yeah. these really um in the industries that you think should change so for example um, one of the industries that's particularly badly hit by the coronavirus control measures um, and will be for a long time to come is the arts mm-hmm. absolutely um you know we're talking about um what is it yeah, they're saying they're broadway not reopening until 2021 um you know, so are these really the industries that you want to close down because of climate change? No, of course not. And and yet it's all the industries that hang, depend completely on some form of face-to-face social interaction, all of those. So you might say, yeah, the coffee shop bubble needed to burst. It was only a matter of time and the, it has now comprehensively burst and we really aren't going to see baristas on the same scale that we had before, right? Um but it wasn't an industry I would submit that was particularly high on the agenda as far as climate change was concerned. You know, there were other industries that have been arguably rescued, um, where people haven't lost their jobs, that that where there's a, a, a greater a greater imperative for change. So I'm not sure we have quite understood we what yeah, we need we, to do. We haven't directed the crisis in the way that we could have done, maybe. No. I mean, I guess we still could, but I'm not seeing any great signs of any um, inclination to do so among the powers that be. They seem to be mainly concerned about um, getting it all open and, and the pubs open as quickly as possible. OK, so the last question, just very, very quickly, is, and it's a big question, unfortunately, so um, you can answer <laughs> it in as short a time as you want. If you were in charge, if you were prime minister or head of the ECB, what would you be doing to help us in this crisis now? Well, I, I mean, there, there are two different roles there, aren't there? I mean, I'm prime minister or head of the ECB. Yes, right? no, that's true. They're not completely allied, but whichever one you'd rather take on. But I think, you know, given my general stance on this, is that is that governments should be doing whatever it takes to um, bring their economies out of this mess and to get people into employment and to bring about lasting change to reform the economy so i would want um i would want to be looking at which industries we needed to be supporting which it was supporting to reopen and which we needed to be supporting to change or even to disappear mm-hmm. and um I would want to be looking strategically at um, training and thinking creatively about what that means, because, you know, um, we've had this kind of sort of glorification of STEM for about the last 10 years. But actually, I think we're just beginning to rediscover that uh, um, STEM alone is not enough, that we we need we need arts, we need humanities, you know, we need the we need a range of people mm-hmm. with different skills um, and this sort of narrow focus on different skills isn't enough for us. Um, so I would want to be looking at that. But I think this kind of view of what ex- how do we want our, our, our economy to look? What should it be like? And also what I said before about a grown-up discussion about how much um, involvement government really should have in supporting the incomes of its citizens. Should we be encouraging employers to pay better so that government has much less involvement? Or should we be accepting that actually, in the end, um, government uh, people and businesses all ultimately depend upon government and it's not unreasonable for um, at least the foundation of people's incomes to, be ba- to, to come from government? 
um, you know, we, we, that's the conversation we need to have. Um, and I think um, as far as central banks are concerned, I think I would be pushing quite hard for greater involvement in decision-making and greater coordination with treasuries and greater decision uh, involvement in the decision-making about government spending, really, and, and, and making a clear statement about, you know, I have your back, we have your back. I, we can't kickstart the economy. It's not what we do. Um, it very much is your responsibility to decide what this economy should look like to resolve the inequalities in the in the economy to to make it a better place for everybody and we will support you to do that francis cobbler thank you so so much for being so generous with your time today and explaining so much about economics and how it looks how it should be and i think really starting a conversation that is so important to all of our lives even though we don't realize it um, and your book, The Case for People's Quantitative Easing, I suggest is a, is a good place for people who are interested and want to learn more um, to start in that conversation. Thank you very, very much for being interviewed today. Pleasure. OK, so I'm going to stop recording, but you have to keep your browser open just to upload it. Is that all right? Thank you for listening to this episode of Physical Attraction. You can find our guest today, Frances Coppola, on Twitter at Frances Coppola, and you can find her blog on finance and economics at Coppola Comment, complete with some recent thoughts on how to respond to the current economic downturn. And I urge you to give it a read, not only for that, but also for the historical debates about QE and discussion of the latest financial news. You can find us online at physicspodcast.com, where you'll find the contact form. You can get in touch there. Any comments, questions, concerns, topics you'd like to see us cover, topics you wouldn't like to see us cover. We're open to talking about all kinds of subjects on this show, as I'm sure you're appreciating. You can get in touch with us there, and I, I aim to respond to everyone who, who gets in touch via that contact form. Other things that you can do via the website, there's the Patreon, where you can subscribe for no money initially, but some small number of dollars uh, once we release the next bonus episode. You'll be able to access six bonus episodes if you subscribe to us on Patreon, so you could join the uh, dozen or so people who have already done that. You can donate to the show on PayPal if you want to give us a tip to support us in our work and help me pay for the Libsyn fees and all that sort of thing. And... One of the best things, of course, you could do to the show if you don't want to support it financially is definitely to tell as many people who might be interested in the show about it. Review us on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You, you know all the stuff. You listen to plenty of podcasts. You know the kind of things that podcasters would like you to do. You can also follow us on Twitter, Physics Pod, and Facebook page is Physical Attraction. And the Science Podcasts group, by the way, is up there on Facebook as well. Um, you can find all sorts of stuff about science podcasts there. Um, most of the people there are fellow science podcasters, so if you're looking for something new to listen to, that might be a good place to do it. Until next time, then, take care. <laughs>